This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Martin Sibley, who's the founder of Disability Horizons and author of Everything is Possible. Glad to have you on the show, Martin. How are you? Great to be here. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for having me. Before I get into the questions and all that good stuff, I want to share a little bit about how we connected, which I think will be a good way of setting the stage for our listeners. So I used to produce a conference called Influencer Conference, which was a global event. And I started Influencer Conference in 2010. So I guess 10 years ago, which sounds absolutely ridiculous. And in 2011, I brought the conference to London and Berlin. So we expanded the conference from a New York base to include other cities. And you were one of the speakers of the London, inaugural London Influencer Conference at Hub Westminster. We were actually, I believe, might have been the first or second event that they ever did in that space. And so that's how we got to know each other. We've been connected ever since, but we have not actually been in the same space as we were kind of talking before we got, before we started recording. We haven't maybe been in the same space for almost, I guess, eight to nine years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're connected on all the ways in which people are connected nowadays. And I've always been obviously a big supporter of your work and who you are as a human being. And I think those two things actually combined. Who you are as a human being is very much a part of your work and your focus on disability and inclusion. So I want to, after my preamble, I want you to share a little bit about yourself your particular disability and and how that's informed you starting all the amazing things that you started. Cool. That sounds good. What a journey we've been on as well, Philip, right? Yeah, it's a journey. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, disability-wise, I have a condition called spinal muscular atrophy, which comes under the umbrella of muscular dystrophy, which more people have heard of. But what does that mean day to day? Well, basically, I'm in a power wheelchair. Like I can't stand or walk at all. I'm always in my wheelchair in the daytime. I have to have a team of carers to help get me up in the morning, get dressed, help me bathe, all the daily living stuff. I have to have a lot of help because my upper body is weaker as well. And that's been since birth. So that's like a a forever thing. And I think that's an important distinction to make because it's all I've known, right? I've just adapted since day one that that is my that is my normal, you know? So I was born, grow up, still live in the UK, went to mainstream school, which I think I was probably one of the first generations that were able to go to the school where there were other students that weren't only with a disability. So I think that that was an important step in the general evolution of inclusion because if you grow up where you're not just defined by having a disability, that makes a really big difference around Mm -hmm. socialising. But I also had the things that I needed at school to thrive. They were still provided and I still had friends that were disabled as well. I went to university, did economics and 
a master's in marketing, worked at an NGO for five years. And then since it was about 2011, when I left my day job and my dad was like, ah, what are you doing leaving a a well-paid job in London to do this stuff that you can't even explain exactly what it is you're doing. So that was coming up 10 years ago. And it's, you know, entrepreneurial, it's been a slog, but we've made big impact with the community and the business stuff is starting to fly the last two or three years as well. It's interesting because, you know, I know you, right? Like we've had a shared history. And when I was thinking about our conversation, which is also something we've talked about, I want people to know your story. I want them to get a frame for all of the things you've accomplished and the challenges and how you've managed them. But yet you are more than your disability. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're more than this set of particular circumstances. And I think we all are. But when someone is when someone is disabled or physically challenged, we tend to focus on that. And I wanted to accomplish two things. One, give you an opportunity to um, tell your story because I think it's a notable one, but yet expand it to demonstrate that, yes, this is a part of your life. Like you said, I've always, this is what I've known, Mm. but it doesn't define who you are. Do you find yourself having to make those sorts of distinctions as you go through your life and deal with people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of different interplays between parts of my life, parts of society. And if you take something specific like the media, there's generally a narrative that a disabled person, and language-wise, by the way, in the UK, we say disabled people. That's the like the correct mm-hmm. way. And then in America, it's people with disabilities. And so I just wanted to clarify, there's that yeah. sort of preference of language from different parts of the community and culture really as well. But yeah, the narrative with the media is often either that there's a kind of triumph over tragedy. So they really big up the fact that things were awful and then someone went and did something huge, like climbed a mountain and, you know, (laughs) did scuba diving. And don't get me wrong, like I've done a load of crazy stuff in my time that I loved every minute. And I think the inspiration that gives us as humans is really cool. Like disabled or not, that's cool, right? But Mm -hmm. there can be a narrative of like, you know, wow, it's great to see you out in the nightclub, even though you're in a wheelchair. And that level is maybe not so positive and not so empowering. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to look at the narrative culturally in the media that it's not everybody is a Paralympian kind of vibe, right? But then there's the other narrative, which is like, you know, the lack of healthcare, particularly in America, I know it's a big worry and a struggle for many people with a disability and the kind of social care side, like there's that view around charity and pity and sympathy. And in Mm -hmm. a way, the goal here is that disabled people can be extraordinary the way any human can be extraordinary but it's not as exactly just mirroring what you've said it's not like focus only on the fact they have this health condition or a disability it's they're awesome because of all the other things they are as well so I think the media has a big part to play I think marketing I I love marketing for its ability to change narratives and you know empower cultures that are maybe not feeling empowered in certain circumstances. So there's a whole load of stuff around that. I think on a personal level, there was a whole load of things that I 
have to overcome to live everyday life. There was a whole load of challenges I set myself on a very personal level to kind of prove to me that I could do it or maybe prove to the world that I could do it. But I'm now mid-30s and I think around turning 30, I noticed a big shift in it wasn't just about going further on a trip or going higher up a mountain or, you know, something more adventurous. It was very much about growing and giving back and empowering other people and sharing that experience. And for me, that's kind of where I've been at more recently is building platforms and building ecosystems that enable other people with a disability to flourish, to feel heard, to connect. But even more recently, that's connecting with brands and how inclusion branding is like the next sustainability branding. And it's kind of amazing that all these different parts of a jigsaw puzzle have ended up coming together. And it's an exciting time for inclusion at the moment. Yeah, and that is, it's like there's so many moving parts, which is why I get excited to have these conversations because I feel like you're in almost like a fulcrum sort of position because what you're dealing with is it's their elements of storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. Like how are you adjusting and changing narratives or broadening them, right? Like you said, the idea of inspiration is a very human thing. We all are in like, look for those kind of stories, but you don't want to be just that story, right? Mm -hmm. Then you mentioned the sustainability piece, right? How are physical spaces are designed to be inclusive to everyone. And now, as we are all sort of dealing with coronavirus in our own spaces, there might be a different lag time to when people are listening to this. So maybe when by the time people are listening to this, they'll be like, oh, coronavirus, I remember that. Let's <laughs> <laughs> hope, hope so, right? Yeah, I, hope yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. But we're now in the midst of a new, what I'm calling a new abnormal, right, of being separate from each other, which has different implications for myself as it could have for any number of different people, whether they are elderly, whether they're dealing with health challenges, whether they're disabled in some way, shape or form. So there's so many different elements of this going on. Let's focus just on a moment on the brand piece of it, because I want to hear how you've gotten brands to embrace these other pieces of storytelling. Yeah, I think the main bit has been people don't realize the number of people that have a long-term health condition or basically classified as disabled. So globally, we're talking 1.3 billion, which I understand is about four times the total population of the United States of America. So mm -hmm. if you want to talk consumer markets, like that's a lot of people that still buy groceries and go on holidays or are a potential area for the workforce. And obviously, from a marketing perspective, where I get very more focused and interesting, there should be inclusive marketing as well. So there's a whole load around the business case. I think there's always been the moral case. It's the right thing to do to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. I think the legal bit has a place. But if a brand understands that if their customer service is better, if their branding is seen as social and ethical, just like with the environment and fair trade, that not only is there this new market, the 1.3 billion who spend apparently $8 trillion a year, but 
there's the other customers that aren't disabled who are starting to care more about what the brand stands for and the the things around the actual core product or service. So for me, that's been the way to engage brands with that discussion, that footing, that narrative. And then obviously it's getting down into the nitty gritty and it's like, okay, so how can we move the needle most in your company and then it, you know you're looking at consultancy making changes if necessary but where again it's exciting is influencer marketing because with the rise of influencer marketing there already are disabled instagrammers and disabled youtubers whether they're in beauty or sport or travel or whatever industry and it's a really great way of targeting your marketing a lower cost per click or cost per impression than you do with the older traditional media. So as you say about Fulcrum, there's just like so many different things that have started to come together at one time. Do you, have you found, and I love that you brought up the influencer piece of this, have you found that the brands are doing more, any large brand, if they're going through a traditional marketing channel, that it's them trying to frame a narrative and a story versus an influencer that has the capability of telling their own story. Yeah, I mean, did, did you ever watch Mad Men over the years? The, the oh, of course. Yeah. I, I watch thought you and probably rewatch. Had, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm on my second run round now because obviously I'm going nowhere fast with, with the coronavirus, right? But when you look at traditional marketing and media, and you know this, Philip, but it's good to just recap. The creative done centrally and then the media is brought in. But what you have with influencer marketing is the creative and the media in its purest sense. It should be the creative and the media done within the influence. And obviously, there's a broader brief, there's a broader business objective. But I think the more you give an influencer the the freedom to be themselves because they know their audience, right? Their audience already trust and respect them. So I think that there has to be that sort of trade-off around giving that freedom of creativity. And I think when you look at disabled people, for so long, decisions were made for us, whether it be particularly in the medical profession, but in other parts of life, it was always, you know, even just parents would presume that role, even when someone was in adulthood, there was always this sort of decision-making wasn't with the individual. And as we've had independent living and disability rights has progressed after 20, 30, 40 years, we're now able to make more decisions for ourselves. And I think that's where with influencer marketing, that's an important part of that puzzle. But also just like we, we did a big client project on digital accessibility and the fundamental point of the whole document, and we got experts from different segments of the community because obviously you can break it down into different health conditions and things like that. But, you know, in the end, it was about if you're making a website, if you're making an app, anything digital, you just do user testing with disabled people because it's basic marketing principles. So whether it's disabled or not, it's actually that philosophy. You speak to your stakeholders, you understand their needs and wants, you design inclusively and universally, and you end up with a far better product or project for everybody involved. Do you, like having people involved in these processes, like you mentioned, knowing your consumer, knowing your audience, like I won't use the word resistance because it makes it seem as if someone presented an argument and then people pushed back against it, right? So mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't so much that as much as 
was there a stickiness you felt at some point where brands just weren't, they just weren't even thinking like, you know, I call it like benign neglect, right? Where yeah. it's not a, a intentional thing, but it's just, it doesn't really enter into their mind. You know, when, when I was curating for influencer and I don't even remember how we got connected or, or not, like, I don't remember who the person was that connected us is my point. Yeah. It might've been one of the organizers that were on the ground in London. Doesn't, it I don't was, quite um, remember. AJ, AJ Leon from Misfit. That's right. Oh my God. <laughs> how could I have missed that? <laughs> oh my God. Cause, and it's funny. I just like, not just, but like maybe like a month ago, I had texted him back and forth a little bit. Yeah. So it's weird. Okay. So thank you, AJ. Like, <laughs> thank shout you, AJ. out, shout out to you and, um, <laughs> and your wife for putting us together. But there you go. Right. Like he just said to me, yo, Martin's dope. And I looked you up and I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like that was the math. Right. And so yeah. it, it makes sense to me for someone doing a conference about influence and influencers and culture that you be a part of that conversation because you built this incredible network and practice. It was a no brainer. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess my question is boiling down to why are not more folks just naturally inclined to find the most compelling person story or situation, which in my mind would naturally lead them to people like yourself. Yeah. So I, I think businesses have engaged with disability in a different way in the past. So it's more, from a charity perspective or a corporate social responsibility perspective, but not from that business case that I touched upon earlier. And I think that dynamic made a big difference. I think whenever there was some kind of exclusion, whether that be the workforce, goods and services or marketing, absolutely, as you said, it's it's a, an unawareness, it's an ignorance. And I think, so the first part of the puzzle has been educating and raising awareness as to why inclusion makes sense for society, for business, for individuals. I mean, also the other part as well is people acquire disabilities, right? So you may have a workforce and you're not particularly thinking about the disability community, but Mr. Smith or whoever in your workforce ends up disabled, like it's far better to have a policy that enables them to still do their job and use their skills and their experience and their talent, because actually that's far more business sense than having to lay that person off and to recruit a new person. So there's so many different business cases, both around HR and marketing. But I think once people are more aware of this, let's say, opportunity, the other part is fear. And that's been the bit that we're getting there. Like, I'm just not, I'm, I don't take no for an answer, right? Like, I'm just you know, grinding away. But I get it. People are scared that if they try to do something good, but they don't do it well enough, they're going to get backlash from disabled people, which you know, being a minority excluded group, we've had to be quite militant and shouty at times in the past. And I know that's part of my role is to bridge the two sides and to create trust and a space for learning and a space for, for progression, really. But yeah, I think that people are just scared of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And the more we can de-risk that as a disabled person myself and as a community of disabled people and experts and influencers, then there's less risk for the brand because the project is co-created. But as you said earlier, if they're trying to force a narrative 
from head office when they don't really get the culture or get the reality that is probably going to fail so i think it's about co-creation and overcoming fear and this is i think a great point because this idea of fear has been on my mind for a long time and it's I'm not trying to belabor the influencer conference part, but I always come back to this. Like the very first year that I did influencer in 2010, we had a panel called Curing the Culture of Fear. Mm. And it was a panel conversation with a few different entrepreneurs and types here in New York. And if I look back on my time producing the event, I always think that it was one of the more insightful conversations that I've ever put together because fear is this really powerful motivator, particularly in the brand and marketing world. Like I would talk to clients sometimes and I would tell them it's not enough. Like every decision you're making is a fear-based decision. Like you're afraid of losing market share. You're afraid of losing your job. You're afraid of, like you said, saying and doing the wrong thing. And it's very hard to take chances, take risks, push boundaries if you're coming from a fear-based place. So the fact that you keyed in on that is really important, but I want to give you an opportunity to maybe expand on how do you actively de-risk those types of situations? Because I agree with you. I think sometimes an organization and brand, and this is not to let them off the hook, but they'll say, you know what? Eh, I'm not going to say or do anything because I don't want to say or do the wrong thing. So I'll just pretend it's not happening or this thing doesn't exist because it makes me uncomfortable. And if I say something, it'll be the wrong thing, right? And I'll use one quick example, which is not the same scale as like dealing with the challenges that that we've described, but there's a comedian, Hassan Minhaj, and he was on Ellen DeGeneres show, which is a popular talk show. And she didn't pronounce his name correctly. Like she sort of like is Hassan Minhaj. And she was like Hassan Minaj, right? And he kind of used it as an opportunity to correct her, right? And was like, look, you know, it's not really how you say my name. And I think some people won't even ask, right? Like mm-hmm. I interview a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people. And if I'm speaking to someone and I'm not, sure how to say their name, I asked them, right? Even though it might seem a little uncomfortable, I'm like, you know, no offense. I hope you don't take it the wrong way, but I just want to make sure I'm I'm getting the pronunciation of your name right. Yeah. So that's my poor analogy to confronting something that might be uncomfortable. So Mm -hmm. how do you, when you're in these spaces talking to brands, like how do you, and also when you're talking to the other side, right, that has a place that's coming from a place maybe of, less trust and hurt, right? So they feel like they want to be heard and shouty, right? Mm -hmm. To use that word. So how do you manage all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to be honest that, you know, even in a marketing campaign that doesn't have some of these more social issues and sensitivities, you're never going to please everyone. Like as an entrepreneur, as a business, you know that you're not making a product or service for every person on earth. If you have 
your target audience. And I think there's a part around that discussion that's important. We were speaking to a brand and they were worried that what if the website wasn't accessible enough, particularly for blind people? And what if the actual product wasn't suitable for all types of disabilities? And we said, well, with the website, there's basic you know, guidelines and standards that exist. And it's not that difficult to check that. So that's kind of an excuse, like, come on, Mm -hmm. let's just deal with that and move on. And then in terms of, yeah, like if a customer takes to Twitter and is like, oh, I use this product and they're saying it was meant to be for disabled people, I'm disabled and it wasn't right for me. Like there's a level at which that's going to happen the way any customer might not be happy with a product and take to Twitter or any other social media platform. So I think that there's a bit about not looking at disabled people through an overly cautious perspective as that angle. But the way to de-risk it is that you get disabled people to help focus groups, survey, try out products and services and make them more appropriate. And it might be you say, okay, we're not going to go for the whole market of disability. We're going to just talk to people that are in a wheelchair or just people that are blind or who are deaf or, you know, neurodiversity covers all sorts of things from dyslexia to autism to Down syndrome. So, you know, you could say, well, this is where we're going to focus for now and drill down again, like any good marketer would do. You work out your audience and you work out the scope of your project and your brand. So, And then, yeah, when you're talking to the community, just by making them feel, not making them feel heard, but genuinely enabling them to participate in co-production and co-creation, they're not going to get rowdy because they're part of they're part of that campaign, they're part of the process. So they're not going to criticize something that they're almost proud of making change with. So, you know, don't get me wrong, there are always going to be those humps in the road and, you know, things go wrong and that's life. So I think there's a, a double tract of you have to accept failure and challenges and difficulties in life. And that's how you learn and get stronger and grow. But there's all sorts of tactical and strategic things that you can do to de-risk it a lot as well. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like one is advocating a thoughtfulness that isn't normally part of business. Like I've worked with a lot of brands who are very, some of them are not very thoughtful, but I think if you're going to engage in an audience like this, it sounds like your thoughtfulness meter has to really ratchet up high. And I would add, that, I mean, yes, absolutely, you do have to have a, a higher level of empathy, compassion, thoughtfulness. But I think customers are going more that way as a, I feel like in lots of parts of society, there is more social awareness. So brands are realizing that they need to be more catering to the newer type of, particularly Generation Z and Generation Y. Like it, it's another level of what they expect from their brands, right? But there's also, that's where what I do on a business level is to do that thoughtfulness and that de-risking with the brand. So they don't have to change overnight, but by collaborating, they can come on that journey and get there however quickly they're ready to get there. You've done so much and there have been tremendous, I think, improvements as someone who is able-bodied. I remember growing up in New York, you know, late 70s into the 80s, when there was no thought process about 
having physical spaces that were conducive for people that were disabled. You know, the buses didn't have ramps, sidewalks didn't have sort of the, not the ramp, but the cutoff for wheelchairs and even older people, you know, uh, you know, all these things just were not around, right? And we've made some improvement, but then New York, you know, as the place I know best is not great with elevator access to the subway and the subway is a tremendous way in which people move around this city. Like, so we have so much work still to do, but I think there has been some progress. If you look out on that landscape from a physical perspective, keeping in mind, obviously, that there's a wealth of different ways in which people navigate the world, what do you think are some of the challenges, some of the areas that all of us should be paying attention to that could still need to make that journey? Yeah. So, I mean, I think when you look at transport, there's actually kind of a crossroads and a watershed moment that it has been one of the real difficulties for disabled people. Like when I fly, it's unbelievably complex for me to get on the plane. I can't stay in my wheelchair. The wheelchair has to go with the suitcases and the hold. So flying is fraught with risks and difficulties and problems. Generally with trains and taxis and buses, it's a bit more able with the ramp to stay in the wheelchair. But, you know, that took a long while, as you've just sort of said, to to get there. So I think that it's been an industry that's been quite excluding. And as you said earlier as well, just through ignorance, not through uh, premeditated exclusion. It's always through lack of awareness. But as we move into this kind of driverless cars and all sorts of other smart tech and new transport technologies, if those designers and entrepreneurs and innovators include disabled people in that process, it could be an amazing, inclusive way of getting around in the future. If they don't, we're kind of back to square one again. Like if there's a driverless car that doesn't have a ramp or enough height for me to still be in my wheelchair to stay in, like that's going to be very, very problematic. But the bigger, I hope, the difference is that if disabled people are seen as citizens and consumers and, you know, workforce as well, that that's a reason to get us around the table through that design process. Whereas decades ago when we were in sort of medical and residential facilities and more cut off, people wouldn't have thought to have us around the table. So I think that's why there's more need for that to happen now. It's amazing. Like, it's so interesting that, A, as someone living in a city, I'm a public transportation guy. Everybody who knows me knows I'm always on subways and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the idea of driverless tech, for example, like until you frame it in that perspective, I always say to myself, well, oh, cars, like, uh you know, from an environmental perspective, like instead of thinking about the tech smart driverless piece, I focus on the climate piece. And yet there are entire segments where the frame of that is completely different from my own, right? I don't work on those things, but just as someone who opines on those things, I come at it from a different perspective. So I think every chance is a way to kind of put a different spin on it. And the tech piece would not have been my thought process initially. Yeah, I mean, the tech's been an amazing enabler for all different reasons and different types of health conditions. I mean, I I literally do all my work off my smartphone. I only use the laptop for doing 
Skype interviews, that's literally it. Um, everything else is done on the smartphone. Obviously, my wheelchair has become a lot more cool looking and more functional. You know, that's a very, very vital bit of technology. But yeah, even the transport sense, it's public transport. There was a big law case about there's only enough room on most of the buses in the UK for a wheelchair or a buggy. And so there was this, should the wheelchair or the buggy have the priority? And then people were saying, well, actually, can't we have both? You know, why not <laughs> both on the bus? So, and, and I think the older population is going to need more and more support with the kind of different access and technologies. And as we just touched upon, parents with young children need these kind of adaptions like escalators and stairs are not good when you've got a buggy and, and young kids. So I think it's what inclusion to me isn't just disabled people being included in all walks of life. It's the fact that older people and as we said, parents, all these other cohorts, there's just a bit more thoughtfulness around how they can be included in society. And you look at workforces, flexible working is such an important for people with older parents or younger children as much as those with disabilities. So the applications are further reaching, but we need inclusive and a universal design to make that a reality. What are you really excited about? I mean, I think 2020 so far as a year has been a tough one. And we're in, we're in mid-March, toward the end of March. And it's like, oh my God, this year, wow, right? But nonetheless, you know, trying to keep a energy that is a positive energy, if, if possible. You know, what, as you kind of approach 2020 or you're thinking about that still has you excited and motivated in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think I have to be fair to reflect on where we are at the moment that on a personal level, but also a lot of other people with a disability, there's a, the, you know, just trying to not catch this damn virus. And yeah. even beyond the virus, there's a lot of complications about having like care assistants coming in and out of the home and the risk of them potentially carrying the virus so that there are some hurdles just around COVID-19. But one thing I was chatting about with someone earlier is that a lot of disabled people do, for different reasons, prefer or need to study at home, work at home, even do leisure at home. And it's been quite hard to get the mainstream world to actually be as yeah, a bit more flexible to those needs. Now, mm -hmm. everyone's working from home and watching movies at home and it's all because of this virus gone that way. So I think there's a lot of value disabled people could offer businesses and professionals about how to be productive and have well-being and mental health when you are more stuck at home because of different reasons that that happens. I think as a society, we're going to go through some big changes and we're all going to learn bigger lessons about this and we're going to maybe have newer perspectives on the world and the environment when we come out and the economy, when we come out the other side. But I think with the trajectory that we've been on, and even regardless of what's going on at the moment, I think there is so much more appetite with ways of connecting disabled people to government, to business, to charity, you know, and having more employment, more goods and services and more marketing, particularly influencer marketing campaigns. And I'm just excited to be at the fulcrum, to use the word you mentioned earlier. Yeah, man. It's, I mean, your work is very, very important because I think the lessons are universal lessons. Mm. You know, there are things that they're applicable to all 
different parts of one's experience in life. I would often talk about you and I would say like, this dude has done so many amazing things that I've not yet even done. Right. And which I think, you know, not to fall back on the inspiration, I think it's it is good to see and hear and understand because I think there's a very strong human quality to your perspective that is just infectious. And I think it's what has helped your work prosper to the extent that it has, you know, Mm -hmm. while understanding, of course, there's more to do. There's always more to do. But, you know, I find it very important work because it gives me perspectives on things that I don't always think about. So even in the frame of this conversation, there are things you said where I'm like, oh, shit, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's an interesting angle. That's a way to think about it. So it's a way of making us all smarter, you know, which I find encouraging. We need encouragement. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And And I think I mentioned about how I got to a point in my late 20s where I'd done a lot of things I wanted to do. And I was almost a bit like, what next? You know, what, what? Mm-hmm. It was kind of looking for meaning, really. And I think that the fact that there's so many people with a disability and there's a fact that there's so many benefits to inclusion, it, it gives my life meaning. But as I still navigate like we've got a puppy who runs us ragged and crazy at the moment and I'm trying to work out how to train the puppy when I've got very minimal physical strength and um, you know, I mentioned before we were recording that meant to get married and that's been postponed because of the virus so that will be a thing we'll do probably next year out in Poland now but you know life just gives us lessons and obstacles whether we're disabled or not and I think it's how we cope with adversity particularly relevant for now right it's our character and our ability to lead and be role models that really makes a difference to the world and we don't always realize or see that but we all have such a big ability to make a difference every day yeah yeah and these tools help us right like we are we are allowed to cross boundaries to cross all kinds of different obstacles due to these tools. And I always joke with friends like, oh, I'm such a Luddite. You know, I'm always the slowest person to get like the latest thing. But I also think the tools we have are magic in a way, right? Like we're wizards. Like we can have this interview. We can talk to each other. We can see each other. We can conduct this. And we're thousands of miles and, you know, four hours apart, which is still a miracle to me. <laughs> like we are truly, truly magicians from that perspective. <laughs> yeah, we're all, like we are as connected now from New York to Cambridge here in the UK as I am to some of my family who are around the corner, but they're in self-isolation. So yeah, yeah the world's gone upside down now. <laughs> it definitely is upside down, but we're going to right the ship. You know, I have two segments that I do at the end of every show. One's called Off the Dome, which I've actually been putting a little bit on hold because I've been asking folks in this time of dealing with COVID-19, coronavirus, whatever term people want to use, to just reflect on this moment. In a weird way, you've kind of done that already. But, you know, if you can share like just maybe a thought or two to our listeners to kind of get them, you know, maybe through this time rather than me ask just random questions. I figure let's make it a little bit more meaningful if possible. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I think for me, it's been, there's been a shock. Like no one really saw it coming or certainly how big and impactful it would be. And I think my approach has been that what do I need to understand and do for me 
then about my loved ones and like I've got uh, my sister's pregnant my stepdad has a very bad respiratory condition so there's that other level of responsibility of not you know passing this thing around with the immediate people and just the general local community so I think there's just an adjustment looking at the latest public health announcements and just keeping up but I would then caveat that with don't get sucked into the news all day because you will end up depressed and stressed and unhappy because it's not for good reading. So I think there's got to be a balance with that. But then, yeah, like I'm just looking at, you know, okay, I'm not going to be able to travel as much as I would normally be this time of year. But what can I do? You know, maybe some books I've not read. I used to learn a bit of Spanish when I lived in Spain. So I'm like, maybe I'll just, when I've got some spare time out of working from home, just, you know, pick up the languages. So whatever matters to the listener, I would just say, you know, stay healthy, eat well, do exercise and try and still laugh and have joy because as awful as this is, and obviously people are going to lose, some people will lose loved ones as well. And there's no words that can help that, but we will get through it. But it's just about keeping positive and optimistic and staying sane as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I appreciate all those words. I think you're spot on, you know, and and we've all got to find our own way to navigate, you know. So I'm going to get to the drop. We're still doing those. And I think drops are even more important because people are looking for things to kind of do and share. So do you want me to give my drop or do you want to give your drop? You go first. Okay. My drop is really quick and easy. I just finished watching this. It's It's a Netflix show. I'm a big Netflix guy. I know there's many streaming options out there, but Netflix is the one that has provided me with the most quality things to watch. Mm -hmm. And I just finished watching a show called Giri Haji, which is a joint production with BBC and a Japanese studio. And I believe it actually aired on BBC last year, but now is available on Netflix globally. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely loved it. It's this... On the base level, is kind of a crime story with the Yakuza and a Japanese cop, but it's much more than that. It's very, what A, they do that very well. <laughs> so just on the base level of it being sort of a cop thing, it's a high level of that. But then there's a lot of just interesting characters. I think all the performances are stellar and at the core of it is a family story, which I loved. So I would recommend Giri Haji to our listeners. That's a great drop. I love that. But this isn't my drop, but I'm just going to cheekily mention a Netflix thing I was addicted to a couple of weeks back, which was Narcos Mexico. And it just drew me in so much. And my fiance was kind of glad to get me back again one time <laughs> once I finished binge watching it. <laughs> she almost lost you to the cartels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that bad. You know, like I was going on business calls afterwards, like starting to realize I was getting a bit aggressive. So I was like, I need to calm that down, you know. Um, I, I think that the biggest drop I'd probably like to give everyone is a book that I've been listening to on Audible, which is Ryan Holiday, Stillness is the Key. And I started it before all this stuff kicked off. But as I've been coming to the end of it, because it's a good sort of six, seven hours of content that I've been dipping in and out of, but there's just very helpful, insightful, both points around you know how stillness is important physically, mentally, 
emotionally spiritual, that kind of stuff. But it tells it through stories of well-known people, whether they be hundreds of years ago, like the Stoics, or it might be at Winston Churchill in World War II and some more up-to-date examples as well. But yeah, I just found that listen really helpful in the current climate. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that drop. And I know his work. I know his name. He makes a lot of, he makes the rounds. Yeah. You know, as, as someone that people refer to, I've not read that. So that gives me something to check out as well. So I appreciate that. Cool. You know, thank you so much for being on the show, brother. This was great. And I, I, th- my only regret is that we haven't caught up at great length for so long. And I think I'm going to make a commitment to check in a little bit. I know we have emailed and dropped notes on LinkedIn and stuff, but it's good to see you and hear you. So I appreciate you taking the time. No, likewise. Thank you for having me on the show. And yeah, looking forward to catching up soon. It's been a pleasure having Martin Sibley join me on The Deep Dive. We discussed our origin story, i.e. how we connected and met, his work in the area of inclusion for disabled persons across the spectrum, and how influencer strategies impact his work. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website at thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.